Volume Three, Chapter Seven of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Three, Chapter Seven. Oh, well for him whose will is strong. Tennyson. There come times in our lives when the mind lies broken on the revolving wheel of our thought. I am illegitimate. That was the one thought which made John's bed for him at night, which followed him throughout the spectral day, until it brought him back to the spectral night again. It was a quiver in which were many poisoned arrows. Because the first that struck him was well-nigh unbearable, the others did not fail to reach their mark. If he were nameless and penniless, he could not marry die. That was the first arrow. Such marriages are possible only in books, and in that sacred profession which, in spite of numerous instances to the contrary, believes that the Lord will provide. Di would not be allowed to marry him, even if she were willing to do so. And after a time, a long time perhaps, she would marry someone else, possibly Lord Hemsworth. John writhed. He had set his heart on this woman. He had bent her strong will to love him as a proud woman only can. She had been hard to win, but she was his as much as if they were already married. His by right, as the living Galatia was by right of the sculptors, who gave her marble heart the throbbing life and love of his own. "'She is mine. I cannot give her up,' he said aloud. There was no voice, nor any that answered. Strange how the ploughshare turns up little tags and ends of forgotten rubbish buried by the mould of a few years' dust. One utterance of Archie's absolutely forgotten till now was continually recurring to John's mind. Its barbed point rankled. There must be a mint of money in an old barrack stuffed full of gimcracks like this. If ever I wanted a hundred or two, I would trot out one of those little silver johnnies in no time if they were mine. And he would. If the thought of what Colonel Tempest and Archie would achieve after his own death had stung John as Archie said that, how could he bear to stand by and see them do it? The books, the pictures, the family manuscripts which she was even then arranging, the jewels, the renowned diamond necklace that the Spanish government had offered to buy from his grandfather, which he had hoped one day to clasp on Di's neck, all the possessions of the past but almost regal state of a great name which he had kept with such a reverent hand. He should live to see them cast right and left, lost, sold, squandered, stolen. Archie would give the diamonds to the first actress who asked for them. Colonel Tempest would be equally open-handed. As the days went on, John shut his eyes to the pictures in the gallery as he passed through it. A mute suspense and reproach seemed to hang about the whole place. The Velasquez and the Titian peered at him. Tempest of the Red Hand clutched his sword-hilt uneasily. Maris's old Dutchwoman seemed to have lost her interest in selling her marvellous string of onions to the little boy. Ribalta's Spanish Jesuit fingered the Red Cross of Santiago embroidered on his breast, and looked askance at John. John turned back many times from the library door. The new books which he abound in exact reproduction of a beautiful old missal of the Tempest collection, and for the arrival of which he had been eagerly waiting, remained untouched in their packing-cases. He could not look at them. Once he went into the dining-hall, 
unused when he was alone, and opened one of the ponderous shutters. The rich light pierced the solemn gloom, catching the silver sconces on the wall and the silver figure standing in the carved niches above the fireplace. "'You will not give us up,' they seemed to say, and the little cavalier turned to his lady with a shake of his head. As John closed the shutter, his eyes fell on the tempest motto on the pane, Je le ferai durant ma vie, and it stabbed him like a knife. He went out into the open air like one pursued, and paced at the dead forest, waiting for the spring. All he had held so sacred meant nothing then, nothing, nothing, nothing. The tempest motto round which he had bound his life, round which his most solemn convictions and aspirations had grown up, had nothing to do with him. He had been mocked. He, a nameless bastard, the offspring of a mere common intrigue, had been fooled into believing that he was John Tempest, the head of one of the greatest families in England, that everybody belonged to him and he to it as entirely as, nay more than, his own hands and feet and eyes. It was as if he had been acting a serious part to the best of his ability on a stage with many others, and suddenly they had all dropped their masks and were grinning at him with satire faces in grotesque attitudes, and he found that he alone had mistaken a screaming farce of which he was the butt, for a drama of which he imagined himself one of the principal figures. John laughed a harsh, wild laugh under the solemn, overarching trees. Everything, himself included, had undergone a hideous distortion. His whole life was dislocated. His faith in God and man wavered. The keystone of his existence was gone from the arch, and the stones struck him as they fell round him. The confusion was so great that for the first few days he was incapable of action, incapable of reflection, incapable of anything. Mitty. That thought came next. That stung. He had nothing in the wide world which he could call his own. No roof for Mitty, no fire to warm her by. He was absolutely without means. His mother's small fortune he had sunk in an annuity for Mr. Goodwin. What would become of Mitty? How would she survive being uprooted from her little nest in the garret gallery? How would she bear to see her lamb turned adrift upon the world? Mitty was growing old, and her faithful love for him would make the last years sorrowful which was so happy now. Oh, if he could only wait till Mitty died! John had not wept a tear for himself, but he hid his face against the trunk of one of the trees that were not his, and sobbed aloud the thought of Mitty. And next day came a letter from Archie, saying that Colonel Tempest was at death's door in one of the London hospitals, owing to having accidentally shot himself with a revolver. John sent money much more than was actually necessary, and drew breath. Nothing could be done until Colonel Tempest was either convalescent or dead. He was reprieved from telling Mitty anything for the moment. And as the spring was just beginning to whisper to the sleeping earth, and the buds of the horse-chestnut to grow white and woolly beneath the nursery windows, as John had seen them many and many a time, how or why I know not, but with the waking of the year, Mitty began to fail. She had never been ill in John's recollection. She had had a bone in her leg occasionally, but accepting that mysterious ailment and a touch of rheumatism in later years, Mitty had always been quite well. 
She was not actually ill now, but... It was useless to tell her not to do her nurseries herself, and to positively forbid her to wash his socks and handkerchiefs. Mitty worked exactly the same, and John, with an ache at his heart, came indoors every day in time for nursery tea, and Mitty made him buttered toast, and was happy beyond words. But I think her eyesight must have begun to fail her, or she would have seen how grey and haggard the face of her lamb became as the days went by. Who shall say when a thought begins? Long before we see it, it was there, but our eyes were holden. L'amour commence par l'ombre. So do many things besides love. The letters were destroyed. When did John think of that first, or rather, when did he first hear it whispered? Why was his mind always going back to that? He would not have burned them if he had taken time to consider, but the first impulse to do with them as their writer had herself intended had been acted upon before he had even thought of their bearing upon himself and others. At any rate, they were gone, quite gone, sprinkled to the four winds of heaven. There was no other proof. And his, no, not his father, Mr. Tempest, who knew all about him, had intended him to be his heir. He had left him his name and his place with a solemn charge to do his duty by them. I have done it, said John to himself, as those two would never have done. Shall I let all go to rack and ruin now? If I was not born a Tempest, I have become one. I am one. And if I marry one, my children will be Tempests, and those two fools will not be suffered to pull overly stone from stone and drag the great name into the dust, as they would, as they assuredly would. Had not Mr. Tempest foreseen this, when he exacted that solemn promise from John on his deathbed to uphold the honour of the family? Could he break that promise? And through the vain sophistries upsetting them all, a mad cry rang, Di loves me! She loves me at last! I cannot give her up! The challenge was thrown out into the darkness. No one took it up. A fierce restlessness laid hold on John. He rushed up to London several times to hear how Colonel Tempest was going on. Each time he told himself that he was going to see Di. But although the first time he went to see Colonel Tempest's lodgings, the servant informed him that Di was with her father, he did not ask to see her. Each time he came back without having dared to go to the little house in Kensington. He could not meet those grave, clear eyes with the new gentleness in them that went to his head like wine. He knew they would make him forget everything, everything except that he loved her, and would sell his very soul for her. Time stopped. In all this enormous interval the buds of the horse-chestnut were not yet burst green. It was ages since he had seen the first primrose, and yet to-day, as he walked in the woods on the day after his return from another futile journey to London, they were all out in the forest still. And something stirred within him that had not deigned to take notice of all his feverish asseverations and wanderings, that had not rebuked him, that had not even listened when he had said repeatedly that he could not give up die. By an invisible hand the challenge was taken up, and John knew the time of conflict was at hand. He walked on and on, not knowing where he went, past the forest and the meadowland, and away over the rolling moors, with only Lindo for his companion. 
At last, his newly returned strength failing him, he threw himself down in the dry, wind-swept heather. He had not outstripped his thoughts. This was the appointed place. He knew it even as he flung himself down. His hour was come. It was an April afternoon, pale and bleak. The late frost had come back and had silenced the birds. One only deeply in love, somewhere near at hand but invisible, repeated plaintively over and over again a small bird-name in the silence of the shrinking spring. And John's heart said over and over again one little word, Die, die, die. There are some sacrifices which partake of the nature of self-mutilation. That is why principle often falls before the inslaught of a deep human passion, which is nothing but the rebellion of human nature brought to bay, against the execution upon itself of that dread command of the spiritual nature. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. To give up certain affections is with some natures to give up all possibility of the quickening into life of that latent maturer self that craves for existence in each one of us. It is to take, for better or for worse, a more meagre form of life, destitute, not of happiness, perhaps, but of those common joys and sorrows which most of all bind us in sympathy with our fellow-men. What marriage in itself is to the majority, the love of one fellow-creature, and one only, is to the few. To a few, happily a very few, there is only one hand that can minister among the pressure of the crowd. There was none other woman in the world for John, save only die. Sayings, common to vulgarity, profaned by every breach of promise case, can yet be true sometimes. Die, 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 said John. He tried to recall her face, but he could not. When they were together he had not seen her. He had only felt her presence, only trembled at each slight movement of her hands. He always watched them when he was talking to her. He knew every movement of those strong, slender hands by heart. She had a little way of opening and shutting her left hand as she talked. He smiled even now he thought of it. And she had a certain wave in her hair just above the ear that was not the same over the other ear. But her face... No, he could not see her face. He tried again. They were sitting once again, he and she, not very near, nor very far apart, in the low entresol room at Overley. He could see her now. She was arranging the lilies of the valley, and he was saying to himself, as he watched her with his chin in his hands, This is only the beginning. There will be many times like this, only dearer and sweeter than this. Many times. That deep conviction approved as false as all the rest, as false as everything else which he had trusted. And all in a moment as he looked, as he remembered, was it endurance, was it principle, that seemed to snap? He set his teeth and ground his heel into the earth. Agony had come upon him. Passion, writhing in torment, rose gigantic without warning, and seized him in a tightened grip. It was a duel to the death. John sat motionless in the solitude of the heather. The bird was silent. On either hand the level moors met the level sky. Linda walked in and out in semi and total eclipse near at hand, now merging life-size upon a hillock, now visible only as an erect travelling tail amid the heather. The sun came faintly out. 
There was a little speech of bees, a little quivering among the poised spears of the tall bleached grasses against the sky. Time passed. John's was not the easy faith which believes that in another world what has been given up in this will be restored a thousandfold. The hope of future reward had no more power to move him than the fear of future punishment. The heaven of rewards of which those speak who have authority would be no heaven at all to many, a place from which the noblest would turn away. Love, worthy of the name, even down here, gives all, asking nothing back. John did not try to define even to himself the faith by which he had lived so far, but as the veiled sun stooped near and nearer to the west, he began to see, as clearly as he saw the sword-grass shaking against the sky, that he was about to remain true to it, or be false to it, for ever. Perhaps that faith was more than anything else a stern allegiance to the giver of that law within the heart which independent natures ever recognize as the only true authority, which John had early elected to obey, which he had obeyed with ease till now. He had been condemned by many as a free thinker, for to be obedient to the divine prompting has ever been stigmatized as lawlessness by those who are obedient to a written code. John had no code. Yet God, who made, if the tourists who cheaply move in flocks on beaten highways could only believe it, those solitary, isolated natures, knew what he was about. And to those to whom little human guidance is vouchsafed, he adds courage, and that self-reliance which comes only of a deep-rooted faith in a God which will not keep silence, who will not leave the traveller journeying towards him unpiloted upon a lonely shore, or ultimately suffer his least holy one to see corruption. John looked wildly round him. Even nature seemed to have turned against him. It spoke of peace, when there was no peace. For nature has no power to mitigate the bitterness of that cup of self-surrender which even Christ himself, beneath the kindred stars of still Gethsemane, prayed might pass from him. John hid his convulsed face in his hands. The crises of life have their hour of loneliness and prostration, their agony and bloody sweat. That cup which may not pass, that cup which may not pass, how ennobling it is to read of in the lives of others, how interesting to theorize upon in our own, how appalling in actual experience when it is in our hands to drink or to refuse, refusing forever with it, if we accept it not, the hand of him who offers it. The solemn world of grey earth and sky waited. The light in the west waited. How much longer were they to wait? How much longer would this bowed figure sway itself to and fro? "'I will do it,' said John suddenly, and with a harsh, inarticulate cry he flung himself down on his face among the heather, clutching the soft earth, for the hand of God, whom he would not deny, was heavy on him. End of Volume 3, Chapter 7